Welcome. Here is this past Sunday's sermon from Grant Memorial Church. Well, good morning, Grant Memorial. Thank you for joining us today. Have you ever been the victim of something that was too good to be true? I remember when Bethany and I lived in Vancouver, uh, we were sold on the offer of a free weekend in Whistler, which was very attractive to us as a house-poor young couple who didn't get out much and certainly couldn't afford a weekend getaway like that. And here's the amazing thing. All we needed to do was let some guy over to our house and do a demonstration about a vacuum. I I anticipate some of you maybe have been there before. It's good to know that we're not alone. Well, anyways, we had no problem with that arrangement because we knew our answer to the vacuum would be no because we literally couldn't afford it even if we wanted to. So we thought listening to a guy talk about a vacuum for an hour was easily worth the payoff of a trip to Whistler. Well, the details of the story are a little fuzzy, but fast forward literally three hours, and we couldn't get this guy out of our house. And to top it off, we were now afraid of the air quality in our home after the demonstration showed the sheer amount of dirt and dust that we were inhaling regularly. Well, here's the kicker. When we finally got the gentleman to the front door after breaking the news that there was no way we were going to spend $3,000 on a vacuum, he proceeded to hand us a voucher which invited us to pick up our free gift at a location downtown the following Saturday at 3 p.m. Hmm, we thought. Well, with nothing to lose upon arrival the following Saturday, we realized quite quickly that they were not simply handing out free trips, but they were rather selling timeshares. That if we purchased one, we would receive a free stay at the Whistler location, hence the free trip they had been promising. So fast forward, another one to two hour long presentation which made us covet, feel bad about ourselves, and question our calling into lifelong ministry. We laughingly told them no, pointing out the obvious that a 24-year-old couple living in Vancouver had no means to sign up for a lifelong timeshare. As we walked away from the salesman who had a very difficult time understanding simple math, as well as the supervisor who didn't get that a negative bank balance and the purchase of timeshares don't go well together, we finally headed to the door where they handed us a consolation prize, which I believe was either a trunk organizer or a flashlight. And we headed back to our dust-infested home with no trip in sight. Now, the reason that I tell you this story is not simply to conjure up painful memories of similar situations that you've been through, but rather to point out that to an extent, this is the experience of some when they receive the gospel. People come to God because of the free gospel of Jesus Christ. They fall in love with the good news that Christ has purchased their freedom. And so they take the plunge into a relationship with Jesus and jump into Christian community, only to find out that pretty quickly, this Free gift of eternal life may have some fine print attached to it, or so it seems. So someone becomes a Christian, and then we hit them with all sorts of additional requirements of them in order to, in a sense, keep this free gift. All sorts of expectations. Uh, Pastor Chris Price puts how we address new believers uh, something like this. 
He says, in addition to the gospel, we hand new believers all sorts of items. So we start by saying, uh, you need to read the Bible. I know it's a daunting task, but if you read two chapters in the Old Testament and one chapter in the New Testament every day, you'll get through it in a year, which you should probably do. Also, Christian community is really important, so you should be in a small group of some sort. You need encouragement and accountability and relationship with other believers. Also, you need to become a regular attender at church, so make sure Sundays are open. Also, God has given you various gifts, abilities, talents, and spiritual gifts that are to be used for the building up of the church. Not only do you have gifts from God, but you are a gift from God to this congregation, and so we need you to serve in the church, and we need you to serve in the community. Also, you need to be on mission. Start telling people about Jesus. Christianity Explored is starting in in the fall. It's a great place to bring people to. Also, you need to quit doing a lot of the things that you do. They're destructive to your health and growth and godliness. Before you were a Christian, I didn't want to point these things out. I just wanted you to fall in love with Jesus. But now that you're a Christian, quit it. Your tastes need to change. Your friends need to change. Your activities need to change. Also, you need to pray a lot. Also, you need to give to the church. And the list goes on. A lot of things. A lot of additional requirements. And we wonder why some people walk away disappointed with the flashlight they got when they signed up for a free trip. It turns out for a lot of people that there are more steps in the process than they anticipated. And and what they get out of it turns out to be underwhelming because when you're expecting freedom, chains and cages just don't seem to satisfy. Now, let me just say, that those things I mentioned in that list are all good things and are extreme, extremely helpful, many essential for us to live out the freedom of knowing Christ and for growing as a Christian, for our sanctification as we come to know Christ more. One commentator said this. He said, if I came to you and you complained, or if I came to you and complained that my plants are dying in my garden and you asked me, well, is there good topsoil? Are they getting sunlight? Are you watering the plants? And I responded, no. Well, you'd say, well, of course the plants are dying. Similarly, if you say, I feel far from God. I'm not growing in my relationship with Christ. I'd ask you, are you praying or reading the Bible? Are you talking about what God is teaching you with other Christians? Are you using your gifts to serve others in ministry? If the answer is no, well, of course you feel far from God. These things are outworkings of faith and are important for growth. We don't grow without them. And as the Spirit of God fills us, he leads us into these things. He convicts us and draws us into a life that will satisfy and glorify his name. But it is so important not to confuse what helps us grow with what gives us life in the first place. The gospel is not dependent on these things. As if they're somehow a part of the transaction. This checklist is not what saves us. Rather, when we are saved, we begin to check this list willingly as the Spirit frees us to do so. Right? As we have said all along in this series, the simple gospel is grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing else, even good things. Well, today, 
We continue our series in the book of Galatians where the author continues to address this very tendency of us to add to the gospel. In fact, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, you'll remember that this letter was penned in the first place because there was a group of early Jewish Christians circulating around the churches in the Roman Empire teaching that non-Jewish converts to Christianity needed to become Jewish or follow Jewish law in order to be saved. They were teaching that the gospel had fine print or some additional requirements that contributed to salvation, namely participating in Jewish holy festivals, practicing circumcision, and following Jewish law. And today, Paul tells us the story of his visit, or his second visit to be precise, to the leaders of the church in Jerusalem to hear from their own lips that the gospel has no strings attached. So would you turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to Galatians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. We're going to read from verse 1 to verse 13, okay? Starting at chapter 2, verse 1. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I I wanted to be sure that I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. When Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray." Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray today that you would teach us, that you would challenge us uh, to be more like you and to know you and the gospel better. Amen. Well, as we usually do, we're going to walk through this text uh, verse by verse to see what is happening here and stopping along the way to see what there is for us to learn in this passage. So let's start with verse 1. It says, then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. 
this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. Okay, so if you remember uh, from last week, uh, Paul wrote that when he became a Christian, when God miraculously saved him, he took a three-year sabbatical in Arabia where Jesus Christ revealed the gospel to him. Then upon returning from Arabia, he went to Jerusalem where he met with Peter to get acquainted with him, who was the leader of the church in Jerusalem at the time, before Paul continued on to Syria. Now this is where our text picks up again with Paul saying that after 14 years, he went back to Jerusalem with his partners in ministry, Barnabas and Titus. Now, just a quick note for anyone interested in timelines, it is likely that Paul is dating everything from his conversion. So after three years, as we read last week, or after 14 years, points back to when he uh, had his revelation from Jesus, which means that he likely returned to Jerusalem uh, 11 years, not 14 years after his first visit that we read about last time. But either way, uh, it had been quite a bit of time, over a decade, uh, since that, that since, uh, pardon me, that Paul had been ministering between these two visits. And then in verse 2, we read the reason that Paul traveled to Jerusalem after all this time. As you can tell from his language, Paul doesn't really hold a significant reverence for the Jerusalem church, right? And, and would have been quite happy to avoid it completely, uh, going about his ministry of teaching the gospel that he had received from Christ. But he does need to pause his ministry and head to Jerusalem because, well, God told him so. Verse 2 says, I went in response to a revelation. So Paul was not beckoned by the leaders in the, of the church in Jerusalem, nor did he have much of a desire to go there, but rather he received a revelation from God that he ought to go meet with Peter. And Paul, by this point in his life, simply followed what it was that God revealed for him to do. And then when he got there, verse 2 continues, he met privately with those esteemed as leaders, Peter, James, and John, and he presented to them the gospel that he preached among the Gentiles. And then we read a rather curious statement. He says, I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Now, at first glance, this looks like Paul is saying that he wants to double-check that the gospel he's preaching is not wrong, right? He wanted to confirm that he was teaching the right thing. But does that really sound like Paul? Who, who has already, in our letter, said that if even angels were to teach something different than what he said, that God should curse them? Does this really sound like Paul, who in just a few verses later will say, as for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. Right? This doesn't sound like Paul at all, who's just argued, as we read last week, that his words are directly from Jesus and that they should be given the same weight as any apostle who has been granted to speak on behalf of God. So what is really going on here? What's really happening? What does Paul mean when he wants to make sure that his work was not in vain? Well, what he means is that he wanted to make sure that they were on the same page as him, not the other way around. Uh, commentator John Stott describes it like this. 
It was not, we may be sure, that Paul had any personal doubts or misgivings about his gospel and needed the assurance of the other Jerusalem apostles, but rather, lest his ministry, past and present, should be rendered fruitless by the Judaizers. It was to overthrow their influence, not to strengthen his own conviction that he laid his gospel before the Jerusalem apostles. Or, in other words, nothing was threatening Paul's certainty, but something was threatening his fruitfulness. You see, if the church in Jerusalem was not preaching the same gospel as he was, if they were sending out missionaries who demanded additional requirements for the gospel, then Paul would not be able to keep his churches in sound doctrine. His race would be run in vain if this false message of the Judaizers continued to infiltrate the church. He was afraid that his ministry would be fruitless and the freedom of the gospel he was certain of would be replaced by a cheap counterfeit, a works gospel that cannot save. And so he met with the leaders of the church to ensure they were preaching the true gospel, the one that had been revealed to him and the one that they had been originally given by Christ. Right? This was a visit for the sake of theological unity, that the gospel they sent out would reinforce the one he had been teaching, not undermine it. If they would stay true to the simple gospel, the free gift of salvation, God's word would spread and people would be saved and Paul's ministry would bear much fruit. But if they had deviated from the message of Jesus... And what came out of their movement was a false gospel. There would be no fruit, and the church of Christ would fade out in favor of Judaism 2.0 with the law as the means for salvation. Okay, so Paul travels to Jerusalem worried that he was alone in preaching the truth, but on this visit, he's pleasantly surprised or at least affirmed by Peter, James, and John that his gospel was right and the church was unified. And very quickly, the leaders there were given the opportunity to put their money where their mouths were. Look at verse 3 and 4. Not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled or forced to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false teachers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. So that section actually says a lot. So evidently, there were some in the Jerusalem church, who Paul's, Paul refers to as false believers, making demands on Paul and his team while they were there. One of the things that he points out is that they were calling for Titus a Gentile convert, to be circumcised. And in the moment of truth, with, with some calling on Peter, James, and John to affirm this requirement, and with Paul appealing to the simple gospel as the only means for salvation, the apostles sided with Paul and did not require the circumcision of Titus. Peter, James, and John walked the walk and extended the right hand of fellowship, says verse 9, to this crew of missionaries and affirmed their call to the Gentiles without the caveat 
that Gentiles needed to become Jewish. So all that to say, it was a wonderful day, a wonderful relief for Paul, Barnabas, but especially for Titus. Now, before we move on, I think we need to let this sit with us for a bit. Not that joke, but the reality. The enemies, Paul said, were not non-believers, but were false believers. Those within the church who demanded that something more be added to the gospel. Now, I'm not asking us in this moment to name false believers among us so you can put your pointer fingers down. But I do think it's appropriate for us to run ourselves through this sift and ask ourselves if we have put unnecessary expectations on people or if we have added something to the gospel as a requirement for what we would declare true believers. Right? This is a difficult exercise, but it's so important. For some of us, maybe our addition to the gospel is certain conduct. Right? Someone's a Christian if they believe in Christ and live a certain way. Right? Maybe to you, real Christians don't do X or Y. For some, it may have to do with the religious order that they belong to. You know, people must be Baptist. Or people must be evangelical, or people must at least be Protestant, or people must be baptized in a certain way. For others, it comes down to experience. True believers have experienced specific moves of the Holy Spirit, or have had certain gifts manifested in them, and if that's not true, then they aren't true believers. For others, maybe it's specific secondary beliefs. Someone's a true believer if... They receive the gospel and believe certain end times narratives or specific understandings of creation or think a certain way about sexuality and gender. Now, I know that some of these examples are making us uncomfortable because a lot of these things, similar to our list early on, are good things and right things. Some of these things are next steps as we come to know Christ and his word better. But they are not a part of the gospel. They do not contribute to our salvation because if they did, then the gospel is only granted to those who think or do those things, which means that the gospel isn't free at all. It actually isn't grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. It's a works gospel. Romans 10.9 outlines the basic requirements for salvation. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's no third part there. There's no asterisk in the text. And at the bottom of the page it says, as long as they're not cohabitating, of course. Or as long as they believe in the pre-tribulational rapture of Christ. Or in the case of Paul's situation, as long as they're circumcised. No. Believe in the lordship, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ by faith. And that is it. That is the gospel. We do nothing. God does everything. Another example from scripture is Jesus' response to the criminal on the cross being crucified with Jesus in Luke 23 who simply said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. That's it. He didn't ask, uh, Jesus didn't ask his opinion about a theological issue. Jesus didn't ask him to recount the ways he had followed an ethical standard. He welcomes him, no questions asked. Not because of what the criminal knew or did, but simply because of what Jesus knew and what Jesus did. Church, we need, I need, you need to acknowledge and repent of the ways that we have added to the gospel. Where we have been the ones in the church demanding proverbial circumcision and undermining the freedom that Christ has granted to us and to those he draws to himself. So what is it for you? What is it that you have added to the gospel? What is, it, what is something that you have made a requirement before you would extend the right hand of fellowship? Friends, that thing for you is likely not a bad thing. It's likely a wonderful conviction that is necessary for growth and for living lives of holiness that we're called to, but it is not a gospel requirement. It Whatever your it is, does not save. Now last week, we already saw what happened next in this text. That the apostles affirmed Paul's calling as an apostle to the Gentiles and did not add anything to Paul's gospel. Right? They affirmed that the message of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, was enough and sufficient to save. And this is exactly why Paul is recalling this encounter for his readers in Galatia, right? This is why we're reading these words. Paul is saying, if you don't believe the words that I've said, if you don't believe the gospel that I have taught, then you have left the church. You are not under apostolic authority, neither mine nor Peter's, James, or John. They as I do not add anything to the gospel, and neither should you. But as we keep reading, we do see that at the end of their encounter here, the apostles do go out of their way to ensure that Paul does not neglect one thing. Verse 10, all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I'd been eager to do all along. Now, it's important that this is not a gospel addition. It's a reminder that the gospel leads us to action. And according to the apostles who walked with Jesus, a concern for the poor was an essential outworking of knowing Jesus. Now, church, this is something that should cause us to reflect as well. Think about it. Out of the thousands of things that the apostles could have said to Paul, make sure you remember this. They chose to emphasize care for the poor. The leaders didn't say, be sure to remember to pray. Be sure to remember to worship. Be sure to remember to gather together or any other essential element of church life and community. They made sure that, that Paul and those he brought the gospel to had a concern and service to the poor. 
These leaders are the men who walked with Jesus day in and day out. And they had come to realize that the heart of God was for the poor. And so it was an essential next step upon receiving the gospel to remember the poor. Right? If you were to pull John aside and say, John, what was it like to follow Jesus? What was important to him? Say the poor. He said, Peter, what was important to Jesus? Oh, man, the poor. Right? Now, this is convicting for me because I think I do a pretty good job at checking off a bunch of those other boxes from those lists we've been talking about. But I don't think I do a great job of this one. On on my spiritual priority list, caring for the poor is not where it should be. And I wonder how many of us are in the same boat. Let's just imagine for a second that somehow Peter came to Grant Memorial I don't know how, use your imaginations. But the Peter who walked with God, who Jesus personally picked to lead the church, came here. And with the one sermon he had with us, he chose to speak about caring for the poor. Don't you think we would take that seriously? I think that our leadership would call an emergency meeting to begin the process of making the poor a priority and begin establishing programs to do just that. I think that many of us would go home after that Sunday morning and call missions downtown to see how we could plug in, how we could serve. I think many of us may even consider moving downtown to live that out easier. I think that our care portal team would burst. I think that our foster care system would have an influx of calls from Grant Memorial. I think we would take Peter's words seriously. Well, we have an opportunity to do just that right now. Out of all the things, good things, that Peter could have said to Paul, it was a care for the poor that he emphasized as an essential element of the Christian life. So our homework today, in addition to reflecting on on what we have elevated to gospel level, is to ask ourselves, Maybe our families around the dinner table. What are we doing about the poor? Or maybe more accurately, what are we going to do about the poor? The scriptures are filled with this command. If you're reading through the Bible, if you're doing devotions, I'm sure you come across this all the time. There are over 2,000 references to the poor in the scriptures which is more than faith, worship, prayer, a bunch of other things like that. Right? The scriptures are filled with this command, and it includes commands or, or statements where Jesus himself in Matthew 25 says that serving the poor is literally serving Christ himself. Right? The poor are on God's heart, and they ought to be on ours as well. And while service in any capacity to the poor or otherwise is not a gospel issue, caring for the poor, at least according to the apostles, seems to be about as close as we can get to living like Jesus. Now, unfortunately, we don't have time to get into the nuances of this next section, verses 11 to 13. But the Coles Notes version is as follows. At some point, We're not sure how long after this visit it was, but Peter traveled to meet with Paul and visit the church in Antioch. 
and which was primarily Gentile Christians. And while he was there, he extended fellowship to them and acted like a brother, eating with them and spending time with them, which to us doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But we need to remember that for centuries, Jews were known for their separation from Gentiles. Right? Author and pastor David Platt writes about this. He says, under the old covenant, God had established certain dietary laws and other commandments intended to keep the Jews from intermingling with Gentiles and being corrupted by their idolatry and immorality. This made eating with, God, with Gentiles particularly precarious. Gentiles ate certain foods that were forbidden or unclean to the Jews, and even sitting at the table with them was considered by some to be impure. Table fellowship was more than just inviting someone over for a meal. It was often considered to be a sign of acceptance and approval. That's why the Jewish establishment is astonished when they see Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners in Mark 2, 16. So Peter had taken a big step here, right? He was breaking down significant barriers in the church. That is, until a group of Judaizers come through or as Paul calls them here, the circumcision group. Sounds like a fun group of guys. But in the presence of these men, Peter began to separate again from the Gentiles, which not only reinforced the idea that Gentile Christians were somehow lesser or not full Christians as the Jews were, they weren't worthy companions, but his influence also spread to the other Jewish Christians, including Barnabas, who himself had helped start the church in Antioch. Right? Now, as we will see next week, Paul does not extend a whole lot of grace to Peter here, and he calls his behavior out. And it's at this point where Paul moves to the main argument in his letter, his theological treatise on the gospel and the dangers of legalism which will be the subject of our conversation next Sunday. But as we wrap up today, we need to notice just how easy it is to backslide or to sway from our convictions and cling to secondary things. Peter, the very one who earlier confirmed to Paul that non-Jewish Christians were fully Christians with no additional requirements was himself treating them as if they were not. So what we see here are Peter's actions not proving his beliefs. And the word for that is the one that Paul uses, hypocrisy. And church, we can be guilty of that too saying with our mouths that Christ is all anyone needs, but judging those who take us up on that offer without conforming to the additional things we expect. Or we show favoritism, associating solely with those who are like us in age, in social status, in background, at the expense of being a unified family. We say uh, no to having a new person in our small group because we don't think they would fit with us. Because they're at a different place in life. They're, they're a different place in their Christian walk or they're just different. Or when we're at church, remember that, everyone? We tend to connect only with those we already know and are comfortable with at the expense of reaching out to the new people we see around us or the person we've seen for years but have never interacted with. 
The church is meant to be a family. It's why Paul gets so angry, as we'll see next week. Church is meant to be a family. And Peter missed the point of unifying the family. And we, too, miss the point sometimes when it comes to acting like a family and not just saying that we are one. Because here's the thing. At our base, we're all the same. Paul gets to that later in his letter in Galatians uh, 3.28 when he says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Right? He just takes those, uh, those, uh, those categories right off the table. He says there's no Jew or Gentile. Doesn't make sense that you're sitting at one table or the other. There's no such thing. Nor is there slave or free. Nor is there male and female in the church. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. We are the same because we are all sinners who desperately need the grace of God. And we all have empty hands otherwise. Nothing to bring to the table to earn or enhance our salvation. At our base, we are all abundantly blessed to be in the family at all. And that should unify us. When you look at the person next to you or the person across the aisle or as you pass them in the foyer because you don't go to the same service, they are family. They are just like you. They are worthy of your fellowship, of your concern. If you saw your biological sibling walk by on the street, would you neglect to acknowledge them? Likely not. So why do we tribalize within the church, acting largely like most people walking past us are strangers and not siblings? Those in the family of God, whether they're like you or not, are simply people who have been given the free gift of grace through Jesus Christ because they simply received it in faith, just like you. There is no tear of believer. There are none who are half saved. Just a whole bunch of us who are growing and have a long ways to go before we're conformed to the likeness of Jesus. But in the meantime, we know that the gospel And the salvation it brings is ours to keep. And the best part is, there's no fine print. And you don't even need to buy the vacuum or the timeshares to get the free gift. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this simple gospel. And we thank you that it keeps coming up week in and week out because I think we need to hear it week in and week out. God, we have a tendency to add to the gospel. And God, I pray that you would work in us, that we would not do that, and and that you would help us to see the ways in which we have done that, that we would repent of those things, and we would be able to distinguish what is good for our growth and in holiness and what it is that makes us acceptable in your sight. They're not the same thing. Help us see that. Help us repent of those things and understand what that difference means in the way that we come before you, in the way that we see other people. God, we love you and we thank you for your grace. And I pray, Lord, for those of us who who maybe haven't been able to get this for ourselves yet. 
those of us who, who haven't convinced ourselves that it can't be this easy, for, for those who, who maybe aren't asking that other people add something for salvation, but who on the inside are feeling like there must be something I need to do. God, I pray that you would free us all from that, that you would free us all from that fear that we haven't done the other thing, whatever that other thing is. Help us to know that the gospel is a free gift, and that's it. And help us to live in the freedom that comes with knowing that. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening with us. For more information about our church or upcoming services and events, please visit us at grantmemorial.ca or on social media at at grantmemorialchurch. <laughs>